0: all right welcome to the canvas podcast where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day i'm chris Cavas.
1: and i'm chris cervello
0: The Cava Ships podcast is sponsored by GE Aerospace. The LM2500 family of marine gas turbines are renowned for being the workhorse for the U.S. Navy and 38 navies around the world. Find out more about GE Aerospace's marine engines and systems at geaerospace.com slash marine. And by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering
1: the advantage. Coming up, ship repair is a tough business, particularly when your primary customer is the U.S. Navy. Changing business structures, shifts in home port and potential workloads, variations in policy can make it a challenging prospect indeed. We sat down with BAE Systems San Diego Vice President and General Manager Eric Icke for his take on the ins and outs and the ups and downs of navigating a difficult business. But first, a look at Naval News this week.
0: Taiwan launched its first domestically built submarine on February 27th. The Haikun SS-711 is being built at the CSBC shipyard in Kaohsiung where it has been under construction since 2021. Taiwan has said little about the submarine's design origins, but externally it appears to be an evolution of the Dutch Navy's walrus class of non-nuclear subs. And while the Haikun shows openings for six torpedo tubes forward, few details, including the vessel's displacement or length, have been released. The Chinese Navy's 46th Escort Force is en route to the Gulf of Aden region to relieve the 45th Escort Force. The 46th left the Southern Fleet's base at Zhangjiang on February 21st with the Type 52 destroyer Zhu 163, Type 054A frigate Zhushang 536, and Type 903 replenishment ship Honghu 906. The standard makeup for the anti-piracy escort forces, which began their deployments in 2008.
1: Initial sea trials of the new Virginia-class submarine New Jersey, SSN 796, were completed on February 29th, shipbuilder Newport News Shipbuilding announced. Further, sea trials will be carried out both by the shipbuilder and the U.S. Navy before the submarine is delivered later this year. New Jersey is the 11th Virginia-class attack submarine that will be delivered from Newport News, and overall is the 23rd Virginia-class sub to be built.
0: A few days earlier, on February 23rd, Newport News received a $1.173 billion contract modification from the U.S. Navy to complete refit and restoration work on the Los Angeles-class submarine USS Boise SSN 764, which has been out of service Since 2016, a series of issues, ranging from scheduling problems to funding issues to shipyard capacity, have made the Boise one of the poster cases for ships in dire need of repairs. With the latest contract modification, the Navy will have spent well over $1.6 billion to reactivate the Boise, which first entered service in 1992. According to the contract announcement, the work is to be completed in September, 2029.
1: The U.S. Navy's expeditionary sea-based ship Herschel Woody Williams, ESB-4, left Rota Spain February 29th to begin a deployment around Africa and in the U.S. Sixth Fleet. The ship will engage in multiple bilateral and multilateral exercises during the cruise. Various teams of U.S. Marines also are likely to be embarked on board the ship, including combat engineers. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval news. I'm out in San
0: Diego, California. I'm here today at BAE Systems, is one of the several shipyards in San Diego. Uh, BAE concentrates on ship repair out here. And with us today is Eric Icky. He's the Vice President General Manager of BAE system San Diego Ship Repair. Uh, Mr. Ricky, thanks for uh, allowing me in your yard today.
2: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: So I've always thought this is an interesting situation out here. You are three shipyards pretty much bang, bang, bang in a row adjacent to the naval base out here, 32nd Street Naval Base. Um, a lot of ships on the waterfront. You have some ships out here. You don't have quite the number of ships that you have in the past. You seem to be a little down turn right now at the moment it is a cyclical business things come things go um at the moment i think you just you had to do a a few hundred layoffs a few months ago Mm -hmm. um and that actually followed a period where you did a few hundred hiring yep um so it is it's not not maybe bust or boom but it's cyclical you have you have sine waves they go up they go down and you're trying to manage your workforce, you have to manage your facilities. The Navy is also trying to manage the maintenance on its ships and get the best value for the taxpayer and not spend too much money. So there's always pressure on you to to find a cheaper way, a more cost-effective way to repair their ships. Uh, There are major, there's a major ship maintenance initiative going on today from the Navy, another new start, essentially with a, Whole new way of uh, measuring things, metrics, and who's doing what when, and who starts planning when, and when does the work actually stop? When does it start? What's the scope of the work? What's the cost of the work? Different, different constructs. So, um, within that, um, you're in the middle of all this. You know, you, you and you, know, you you have a lot to manage. You've got your people, your facilities. You have a customer that's very demanding. You have the ships themselves, and I know, I know that you appreciate the importance of their ships and getting them out there and making them work absolutely so just from 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 your perch here on the waterfront uh, what what does it look like to you these days
2: uh so definitely uh lower volume these days and especially in 2024 um, when i first started with bae systems in 2020 um, right in the peak of covid uh, we had uh, well over 12 to 15 ships uh, in, in some sort of or some stage of their maintenance cycle here at BAE Systems, either over at the Navy base on 32nd Street or over on North Island. Uh, Today, that number is is a little bit less. Uh, We currently have three ships here at our facility um, and two ships over on the Navy base right now.
0: One of those ships, I know the John P. Bertha LPD yep. uh, is here. You've got two LCSs. Who are they?
2: Yeah, we have the USS Charleston, which is in our uh, our large dock right now, and the USS Oakland just arrived last week, and will be going into the dock as soon as Charleston departs.
0: And who are the who are the two ships in the
2: yards? So the USS Essex, a large deck amphibious uh, carrier, and then we have uh, the USS Mustin that we're trying to wrap up right now. So it's in the, the final days of its contract trying to close that project down. <laughs>
0: That's always kind of an interesting thing. You can't, you can't tell just by looking at the yard who's doing what. You and Gene um, Nasco, your next-door neighbors here, I know, uh, are still working on ships, but the ships themselves are in the naval base. So just because they're not here doesn't mean you're not doing them. You've got five ships in. You're working on five ships. Um, what's, your, what's your workforce right now?
2: Uh, right now we're at about 480 uh, labor resources right now um, in our shipyard.
0: Well, where were you this time last year?
2: Ooh, uh, near twelve hundred. Near twelve
0: hundred. Near twelve hundred. Wow, that's a that's a that's a huge swing. Yep. So what what brings about that swing?
2: Um, so there's a, a couple a couple impacts. Uh, the the closure or the closeout of certain jobs like the USS Essex, which is coming to an end, the USS Mustin that's coming to an end. Um, we finished two projects, the Stockdale and the Fitzgerald, over the course of twenty twenty three. As those projects finish, um, there's less volume to maintain such a high workforce so as those projects ended the amount of volume that the navy was creating within the port of san diego was also significantly reduced in the course of 2024 calendar year Uh, so we haven't had the backlog of volume to fill up the docks and the piers to maintain those resources sorry
0: um you haven't had the backlog of volume to fill up those resources do you have more work coming in? What's your, what's your future look like right now?
2: So 2024 is gonna to continue to be low volume. It does start to pick up in 25 and then back up in 26 uh, with a significant increase. So we'll be right back in that cyclical cycle um, in the opposite direction, probably by the end of this year, if not early 2025. How do you know that it's coming back? So we have forecasts that the Navy provides us um, usually three to four years out. So you can see that, that rapid increase in work.
0: Who in the Navy does that?
2: Uh, I'm not sure which uh, group within the Navy does, but they provide annual sort of maintenance plans that uh, across all the major port areas, Norfolk, San Diego, Jacksonville, um, that allows us to forecast what ships will be in cycle for maintenance, uh, and then we anticipate and develop our proposal efforts to shape uh, what jobs or what ships will be in port at certain periods of time.
0: But so the, the the Navy puts these jobs out for bid. Mm-hmm. They're not guaranteeing that that you're going to get this work. You're going to have to bid for this. You have to compete with G. Nasco. Yep. You have to compete with Continental Maritime next door. You have to compete with Vigor mm-hmm. uh, up and down, up the coast. Um, there, there's really no guarantee for this. How do you know this work is going to come to you?
2: Yeah, no guarantee that, um, that we win it, um, but we do know the ships are scheduled to be uh, in a maintenance cycle. That being said the navy also has the ability to take those ships completely out of a maintenance cycle Um, so some of those ships might not actually be proposed or bid against so it's it's a hyper competitive market especially right now in san diego across the board we've seen a lot of new entries into this market uh austell one of the newest Um, a lot of smaller contractors trying to become msrs within the region so uh competition is it's definitely heating up in our port and across the the west coast
0: so i mean mean, this is a big problem everybody's you, you, all the shipyards here are essentially competing for the same labor pool,
2: mm-hmm.
0: the people with, with the same skills. Yep. They want to, uh people don't like to train new people. It's a problem. It's also a problem keeping people that you have trained. Mm-hmm. Um, in this cycle, you're down about 800 people from a year ago. That's about two-thirds of your, of your workforce. Part of your job, though, is to navigate through these cycles. So, uh, what are some of the things you're thinking about, both on the drawdown side? what am I what am I cutting here? What am I careful not to cut? And then when you have an up uptick, uptick again, how are you managing that? What do you have to hire first? What do you have to reinstate first because the 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 sequence makes a big difference?
2: Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up. so, the volume impacts of of the Navy's workload in the Port of San Diego has been across the board. So the lack of ships has impacted CMSD, BAE, and NASCO somewhat uniformly. Each yard has won different projects. However, overall, the Navy volume has been reduced significantly. Um, And that started about two years ago when DDG-1000 was shifted to the Gulf Coast. A couple of docker uh, LCSs were reduced from dockers to pier-side CMABs, which really brought down that volume in addition. Now, the uniqueness of this aspect is, typically over the years, our workforce will transition from yard to yard, wherever the work is. However, if there is a large, uh, or a lack of work across all yards on the waterfront, uh, those employees have not just left the shipyards, but we found that they have left industry altogether. Um, there are other industries that are are picking up, um, trying to find places for these folks to work. Um, so when it comes time to rebuilding, the simple question is where will we get the resources from this industrial base to maintain the demand that the Navy has for us to, to repair its ships? Um, we are looking at all types of different solutions. Um, this is kind of one of those positions for us where we're trying to navigate what's next for our business. Um, that transition from a cost plus into a fixed price world has has forced us, the ship repair shipyards, to really evaluate our business and our approach to managing those up and down cycles um, to maintain, you know, profitability, to maintain a safe work environment. Because what we often find, especially during COVID, which was magnified even more, bringing in a green workforce presents a lot of risks for the employees who aren't familiar with these types of work environments, um, as well as those who work beside them. So huge challenges that we're about to face again uh, into into early 25 and 26, 27 as we ramp back up to support the Navy.
0: Can you explain, you talked about cost plus contracts. Mm-hmm. So th- these are terms that are batted around all the time. And of course, everyone who hears this knows exactly what they mean. Actually, they don't. So for those people who know about about ship repair, know about contracts, but, but, but really don't understand the thread of, What's going on here? When the Navy talks about we got to have this, actually Congress talks about it just as well. What's the difference? What What's the impact for you as a manager? Who, by the way, your your job is to make money. You you have to show a profit here. If you don't show a profit, BAE is not going to be terribly interested in maintaining this yard. So how, and the Navy's trying to control those profits. But how does that work? What What do those terms mean? How does that play out as the contract, as the work on a ship plays out?
2: So to cost plus um, in the repair world has it's been around for quite a while. Um, I started my career um, in 2008 when I uh, graduated from Merchant Marine Academy, um, and the repair side of the business was in the middle of its cost plus era. I started new construction in a fixed price environment where, just as listed, the, a, a customer comes to you says, we're going to build or we want to purchase this ship for this many dollars, and that's how many dollars you have to figure it out. Um, For ship repair, what does that mean? Um, In the past, when you agree to a cost plus contract, there's a fixed sort of profit line. You will make X percent for every hour you spend. Um, On the fixed price side, we settle contracts out of dollar value. You get paid $100 million to fix this ship by these dates. If it costs you $140 million, well, that's your problem. If it costs you less, well, then that's your benefit, right? So we as ship repairers have to figure out how to be efficient uh, at our work in order to be on the, the right side of that equation. Uh, but in order to do that, it takes a completely different mindset to run this facility um, from a cost plus to a fixed price entity. When you're in a cost plus world, you can carry a large pool of workers um, before we switched to fixed price. There were these MISMO contracts that largely allowed um, and means. Uh, multi, multi- multi-ship, multi-option uh, contracts uh, in which a shipyard would have a platform for a period of, say, five years. And every ship type that came in would be maintained by that shipyard. Um, it gave the shipyards the ability to have a stable workforce. Say you carry 600 people here and never really have to worry about those cyclical ups and downs in fixed price. If you maintain a workforce without the volume, uh, your ability to make money goes away really fast. So um, in the fixed price world, we have to be uh, very aggressive when it comes to being efficient as far as executing the work. Uh, But then you also got to be very thoughtful as far as what are the impacts of every decision you make on the bottom dollar of running this facility, which is no small feat in its own right.
0: I think one of the problems with fixed price is it doesn't recognize emergent work. Emergent work, meaning once you get into a job, and just about anybody who's had any work done on their house, their home, their apartment, whatever, their car, knows that once you start getting under the hood, pulling things out, things are often not not as good as they used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might you might find the wall is corroded, the floor is corroded, the, blood, the outlets need replacement. That wasn't in the original contract. Now that you've pulled everything apart, you realize that. Um, but there's but there's a lack of flexibility in dealing with that. Yep. Uh, how does that working these days between you and the customer, the Navy, their primary customer is the Navy, um, in, in in adjudicating that? They know this too, by the way. They they're they're perfectly aware that when the ship comes in the yard, there's going to be emergent work, yep. and theoretically, there's a certain percentage written into a contract allowing for that. I say theoretically because sometimes. The Navy wants to eliminate that as a as a means of getting things on time, yep. which I think is sort of starting again now. There's another cycle of that. Yeah. How does, how, how does that relationship work between you and the customer?
2: Yeah, in a cost-plus environment, managing change is easier in a lot of ways, right? You have the resources on hand generally to absorb the change, um, the alignment of ships and And uh, you know you have a steady workflow of of ships coming in, so you don't have to necessarily plan for one dock to be empty to compete for another one. So in that mindset, you have the ability to manage change a lot smoother, a lot less hiccups. In the fixed price world, it's a lot different, right? Um, There's a specific allocation of cost. Uh, When that cost grows, every piece has to be negotiated. So the process in which change is introduced, negotiated, settled, and then incorporated in the schedule could take days, weeks, months, based off the size and the significance of that change. Um, and then in the event that it goes beyond the requirements of the contract, say, from a time perspective, um, you could be looking at extensions that could um, encumber your facility and your ability to be competitive to bid the next job. Um, and in the Port of San Diego, we've largely been a Navy port. Um, but given the volume constraints, we're now looking at other customers, like commercial customers, um, military sealift Lift command, Um, international customers to try to fill those voids to keep our docks and our peers full. Um, So the element of injecting change into a project, while we're required to by contract, uh, upwards of 20% of the the overall value of the contract without triggering any extensions, um, there's also a challenge of us managing the entire portfolio across our docks and peers to make sure that we we keep the facility full.
0: Switching gears a little bit, um, your physical plan here, your Mm -hmm. infrastructure, Everybody's, everybody, you, everywhere you go, people are constantly renewing their facilities, improving their facilities, making environmental improvements. Mm-hmm. There are federal and state regulations that, that require this, and then there's business that also wants to tell you to do certain things. Can you just talk about that for a while? I mean, so, so some of the changes that have been going on in the yard, just about every yard you go to, if you haven't been there for three, four years, there's something new. So what is new out here? What's going on?
2: Yeah, so a lot a lot has happened uh, over the course of the past decade in this chart, Even before I arrived, obviously, uh, we did uh, in 2017. We uh, we contracted and brought in a new dock, the Pride of California. I believe it's one of the largest dry docks in the West Coast.
0: Floating dry dock. Floating
2: dry dock. Yeah. So that was a big uh, a big investment for our company. Um, we've also, given the fact that we're in California, we've uh, we spent a lot of focus on electrification throughout our facility. So our Pier Four was electrified. Brand new crane, all electric. No more gas our diesel-powered engines that obviously put off uh, emissions and stuff like that, um, to smaller items. So so right now the Pride of San Diego, which is our, our older dock, it was built in 1987. We're in the process of trying to electrify that entire unit uh, in order to stay within the emission control requirements from the local regulators, environmental agencies, et cetera. So there's a constant influx of cash to try to become a greener shipyard. Um, for example, For example, we bought a fully electric semi-truck. We've bought fully electric forklifts. Uh, we are in the process of procuring two electrified security boats. Um, now that the technology is entering the market, uh, those, we'll take delivery on those later on this summer, but it gets away every diesel engine that we can out of this facility um, in order for us to meet those goals. And also for our, our overall goals, become a net zero facility um, in the very near future. So that's from an environmental sort of California vision like that's where a lot of our money is is going but in addition to that there's just the basic cost of operating our, our facility weld machines tooling etc uh, recently purchased a, a brand new water jet table um, new burn tables to cut out certain c- components um, all of that type of stuff goes into us maintaining and upgrading our facility um, as time goes on
0: um, what's your what do you must have a five-year plan or something looking out what is what's going to happen out here in five years
2: uh, so, so quite a bit. Uh, you are in the process of building a, a brand new on-site tent. Uh, the goal there is to keep you know material off the road because land is a, uh, a premium here on the waterfront. We're a 12-acre facility, and there's no way to grow north, south, east, or west. Our current warehouse is uh, currently located down in Chula Vista, but if we can keep trucks off the road and keep emissions down we'll be building a tent here to try to help support that. Um, big picture for the, the next five years, um, we have the electrification projects going on. We have some pier and dock upgrades that we need to do as far as uh, the footings and stuff that go into the water down into the into land below the, the tide region. So th- there's a lot of different investments that are going on. You probably won't see a lot of it to the naked eye, but it's constantly going into the tunes of millions of dollars annually.
0: Are, are you worried about global warming? I know up and down the coast here, I mean, I've been a few places up and down the coast where seawalls are being rebuilt, a lot of things are being relocated as the oceans rise. Are you doing anything about that now, or is that still off to the future?
2: Some of our projects address those types of concerns. So I, I would say it's, it's always present uh, for us, you know, given our environment and sort of the, con- the conditions we have. Uh, but California does a great job of keeping us very focused on the future, and uh, their regulations and requirements are often more stringent but focused on that, that next step.
0: Um, I think some people would like to know, uh, when, when you work on a ship, are all ships the same? One size fits all. Now out here in San Diego, I and mean, I'm just looking right now, you've got John P. Murthy, which is a very large San Antonio class LPD amphibious ship. You just worked on the Essex, which is a larger, another 13,000, tons larger, assault uh, ship. Um, you do smaller ships. You've got LCS's in here, Electoral Combat Ships. These are almost all Freedom Class, not Freedom Class, Independence Class mm-hmm. uh, ships, the, the uh, Trimorans. Um, that's a different hull. That's a different configuration. It's a different scope of work. And you do a lot of destroyers. Not The, the cruisers are facing out, but there are a lot of destroyers in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a type of warship that is in maintenance up and down the, the waterfront here. Um, when you do these jobs, I mean for the Essex, you probably had to hire up, it's, a, it's the scope of the job. And again, it depends on what, what kind of availability overhaul this mm-hmm. is, sure, but still it's a different scope of work. Do you need particularly different skills for this or you've got subcontractors, you're working with other people to do this, you don't have to worry about the combat systems. Uh, is, there, is there much of a difference working on an LCS as an LPD?
2: Yeah, there's there's significant differences across every ship, right? Every every flight of Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, every uh, every aluminum hold LCS, uh, and every big deck Amphib. There's different requirements for each ship. The, the challenge for us is maintaining the skill sets of our employees that can tackle each one of those jobs. Now, a lot of the work that we see come in is repetitive. We see the same type of work items on multiple ships, so it allows us to sort of standardize uh, our, our skills make sure that the people have those types of things. But one of the big challenges we have as we try to expand our market and go into commercial and military sealift command is uh, getting our predominantly Navy-focused employees to learn ABS class rules, right, uh, different classification societies so A- that—
0: ABS, American Bureau of Shipping.
2: Yeah, sorry, American Bureau of Shipping. Um, so we are constantly trying to balance that dynamic um, of maintaining the skill set, but also as we look to, you know— explore new markets like what do we need to learn to be able to compete provide a quality product to those customers
0: um you there's there's an element of cooperation between the shipyards out here people have different scopes of work not everybody can handle the jobs that they that they win um they Mm -hmm. subcontract sometimes you you're the prime you won that contract you need some help with it you might go next door to gd nascos say we're going to hire you to do this. The opposite may happen from them. Um, is anything going on in, in that, that area today? I mean, what, what are some recent examples of that?
2: Yeah, so I, I think uh, in the MISMO days, as I mentioned before, uh, sharing of resources was much more um, frequent. Um, the GD NASCOs, the CMSDs, and the, the BAEs would combine efforts a lot for specific work items and those, those items would transition from ship to ship. Once the Navy transitioned to fixed price, Um, there was definitely a separation of the three major shipyards as far as, okay, what are we gonna do and how do we maintain our ability to do it? Um, Since then, over the course of the past three years, uh, that's changed a little bit. So uh, in the next couple months, we're actually gonna be uh, working a lot closer with our peers uh, to the north and the south uh, with a couple different ships, So the, the USS Chung Hoon, uh, the, the, one of the newest uh, AMOD 2.0 upgrades that are going to be done is actually going to be... Destroyer. It's a, an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, yeah. It's going to be at NASCO, um, but both CMSD and BAE are going to be subcontractors to... Uh,
0: Continental Maritime.
2: To Continental Maritime will be subcontractors to GD NASCO uh, for the first time in a very long time as uh, the, the Navy is looking for us to try to learn the AMOD 2.0 upgrades as a group. Um, so they've uh, they've developed this strategy that's going to allow us to work closer together in that environment, specifically on Chung Hoon on the west coast, and I believe the, the Williams, James E. Williams, James the e. Williams on the east coast. So you're going to see a lot more of that uh, competitor participation. Uh, in addition to that, um, the, the USS Momsen, which is a Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, is going to be doing a DMP upgrade, primed out to CMSD, but it will actually be done in our uh, dry dock here Deep at the
0: prime center.
2: Yep. Um, so we're going to be working as a sub on a ship in our own shipyard for the first time in a long time. So, so
0: working as a sub. So who is who has the prime on
2: that? So Continental Maritime is the prime. Uh, but
0: but but they don't have a dry dock.
2: They do not have a dry dock. The ship was originally supposed to be done in the the graving dock over the naval base. Right. Uh, but now it has been transitioned into our facility, and we will be supporting some of those work items um, in a supporting role. Um, and then letting CMSD execute the, the valence of prime.
0: Okay. All right, before we go, I want to go back to the workforce. Again, you know, you've done some drawdowns. Um, you're about a third or so, roughly speaking, of where you were a year ago. But it looks looks like you're about at the core workforce right now. These, these are people you want to retain to retain your ability to work in the future. They, they, you want them to be adaptable. Um, what, what, what are the challenges of that?
2: So, our workforce has been uh, extremely resilient. Um, I would say, from a cultural standpoint, despite the challenges, um, we've seen a significant improvement in our safety performance across the board. Um, we've seen incident rates that were, um, you know, during the COVID years, the 65 injuries. A year, as and then last year, you know, we saw 21, a major reduction. So the focus is there. Our team is is hyper focused, uh, more so than I've seen in, in my time here, which is I'm extremely proud of. Um, they're maintaining all the skills and requirements. We're turning ships out at a faster pace. We're addressing significant change across the board on every project we have. We're meeting the requirements and the dates that the Navy needs us to based off the demands they need. Um, In multiple cases, we're taking on additional work that was unsuccessful by some outside resources, uh, and we're taking it head on and we're we're executing on behalf of the Navy um, at at rates faster than we've seen before. So the workforce has been phenomenal through all of this. Um, It is my job to figure out how to make sure that we keep them uh, gainfully employed, uh, happy, and, and successful moving forward.
0: But before we go just one more thing uh, we, we're talking about your relationship with the Navy um, I've been out here in San Diego I heard uh, recently heard the Secretary of the Navy give a talk out here and he was very critical of industry um, putting a lot of pressure on industry and in and apparently industry leaders personally to perform better um, the whole relationship with the Navy it's a tough one but it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm right? I mean, there is is there there is a customer-provider um, relationship here. Um, can you do this on, the, on your own, or is this a
2: partnership issue? I think it's both. Um, first off, so I'm a, I'm a lieutenant commander of the Navy Reserve. Uh, I will be on orders in about three weeks, uh, as I do every year for the past 15 years, so I care deeply about the United States Navy and its mission. Um, in regards to it takes two to get this thing right, I, I have seen the commercial side of the business respond to the transition to fixed price much more quickly than i've seen the government the united states navy as far as managing through all the challenges that come with executing a multi-million dollar avail in in a very complex sort of environment Um, one of the biggest issues i see right now um, is is very simple it's funding right the ability to uh, adapt quickly as new issues new change whatever it might be comes up that allows the, the the bigger machine, which is the shipyard, ships force, and Swarmick team to actively address, assess, and keep the projects on pace. We as the shipyards have to do that. We have to do it efficiently in order to maintain our ability to, to be profitable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in some cases, I see the funding constraints as a real issue. Uh, you can even tie that to the continuing resolution back with Congress and the ability to not get a budget passed. Um, as far as creating the funds for these ship execution teams to actually go out and maintain the fast pace needed to, to execute this work. Um, I do believe both teams are working hard to try to do that the best way they can, but there are clear constraints on both sides limiting the ability to do this on time, every time.
0: Folks, we've been talking to Eric Inkey. He's the Vice President General Manager of BAE Systems Ship Repair in San Diego. Uh, sir, thank you very much for having us in the yard.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: And now Mr. Savello has some reactions to some of the latest suggestions on how to build more ships for the U.S. Navy.
1: This week, Secretary of the Navy Carlos del Toro met with shipbuilding industry executives in the Republic of Korea. According to press reports, discussions were very productive and centered on attracting Korean investment in integrated commercial and naval shipbuilding facilities in the United States. SecNav was quoted as saying, in addition to our currently active shipyards, there are numerous former shipyard sites around the country, which are largely intact and dormant. He went on to emphasize the economic value of revitalizing such sites, saying investment in dual use shipyards in the United States will create good paying blue collar and new collar American jobs, building the advanced ships that will protect and power the economy of tomorrow. This message of encouragement and congeniality was in stark contrast to the message delivered to U.S. shipbuilders and members of industry at the recent West 2024 conference in San Diego. During his keynote address at West, Del Toro sent a stark warning to U.S. industry, telling them there would be consequences if they prioritized profits over delivering what was promised to the Navy and Marine Corps. He told the crowd, while I'm very happy for you, you can't be asking for the American taxpayer to make greater public investments while you continue in some cases to goose your stock prices through stock buybacks, deferring promised capital investments and other accounting maneuvers that to some seem to prioritize stock prices that drive executive compensation rather than making the needed fundamental investments in the industrial base and your own companies at a time when our nation needs us to be all ahead flank. Hey, look, I love that the Secretary is encouraging new players to enter the shipbuilding and repair market. And I love that he seeks to hold companies accountable for unreliable worker priorities that don't mesh well with national security. Where I have questions is in the transmission of his message. At this point, SECNAV's Maritime Statecraft Initiative deserves an A for effort and a D for delivery. Instead of running around from speech to speech, doing half-baked bits and pieces, or publicly posturing and slapping around his industry allies, I'd encourage a more methodical approach. He should meet in private with American industry leaders and lay out his goals, concerns, and overall vision. Then aggressively work to gain support from members of Congress who can help with authorization language and appropriated dollars to speed up the process. Finally, it would be wise to sit down with the media to explain who fits where and how the plan can live longer than his term as the 78th Secretary of the Navy. Hey, the Secretary is on to something with this maritime statecraft idea, but unless he and his staff put in the hard work and the engagement necessary to gain support and third party validation, this idea will be another in a long list of could have and should have been strategies that fall short and don't make it from one term to the next.
0: Okay, you're giving him a higher mark than I would, but <laughs> that's that's your choice. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Capitalist Chips Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering the advantage. And by GE Aerospace. The LM2500 family of marine gas turbines are renowned for being the workhorse for the U.S. Navy and 38 navies around the world. Find out more about GE Aerospace's marine engines and systems at
1: geaerospace.com slash marine. Be sure to follow us at Cavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello.
0: And I'm Chris Cavas. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.